this is that moment that someone like me comes out and says something like, I feel a sermon coming. I feel a sermon coming. When we compiled this sermon series for the month of January, when I received questions from all of you in November, questions that were weighing on your heart and your soul and your mind, uh, the second most asked question had to do with our salvation. What must I do? What must we do to be saved? So would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. In 1962, the greatest theological mind of the 20th century was giving a tour here in the United States. His name was Karl Barth, B-A-R-T-H. And he came of age and was a pastor in Switzerland when Hitler came to power in Germany. And even though he was in Switzerland, he actively preached against the anti-Christian rise of Hitler's power. And he started to write these sermons, he wrote books, and they began to catch on like wildfire in a way he never could have imagined or anticipated. Such that today, someone like me, a young clergy person in Virginia, has an entire shelf in my office dedicated to his books. But in the 1960s, he came to the States. He was giving this tour, he went to the leading seminary institutions, he went to Princeton, he went to Union, he went to Chicago. And while he was there, he would lecture on this thing called dialectic theology, the sense that God speaks words to us and we speak words back to God. And for what it's worth, Bart is really confusing. He's really dense. It's something you don't read right before you go to bed. And I love his writing. It's, it's powerful. It's changed the way I understand the world and the way I understand God. But his writing is so dense. He wrote so much that at the end of one of his lectures, a young clergyman went up to him. And he said, Professor Bart, I'm such a big fan of yours. You have to know I've read everything you've written. To which Bart said, son, not even I have read everything I've read. <laughs> Fast forward a couple weeks, he was getting close to the end of his tour of the U.S. And he was answering questions after a long lecture. And they were the kind of questions that I hate. You know, the kind of questions where the person asking it doesn't want to really hear the answer. They just want everyone in the room to know that they're smart enough to ask that kind of question. You know? It's like a typical clergy person. But at the end of the event, there was a young woman, and she had raised her hand and patiently waited the whole time. And finally, Professor Barnes said, yes, what's your question? And she said, well, sir, I just want to know, when were you saved? When were you saved? The early part of the 60s and into the 70s, being saved was all the rage. This moment that you would give your life to Jesus, you know, it would happen when someone like me would say, I feel someone needs to give their life to Jesus. Come on up here to the altar. Kneel down. Ask for God to enter into your soul, and heaven is your reward. That was the deal. It was big. People were getting rebaptized every other week. When did you get saved? And so Bart thought about it for a second, and it was finally a simple question with a simple answer. He thought, he said, oh, that's great. When was I saved? Oh, that's right, I remember. I was saved 2,000 years ago on the cross. 2,000 years ago on the cross. What must we do to be saved? 
I get asked this question all the time. Because in many churches, being saved is equated with that moment where an individual accepts Jesus Christ as her or his personal Lord and Savior. And we look at that as an item on a checkoff list. So long as I do this, I get to go through the pearly gates. These moments of willed salvation, they often take place in something like an altar call or in the waters of baptism or the bread and the cup of communion. Sometimes they happen in the middle of a hymn or a scripture reading, and heaven forbid, even in a sermon. In many places, being saved like this is worth celebrating as a total rebirth, such that I have friends who celebrate two birthdays every year. They celebrate their chronological birthday and when they were reborn in God's love. They celebrate it as such that they get two birthday cakes and two sets of presents every year. Is that what it takes to be saved? Is that part of God's requirements to pass into heaven? This is what I do know. That the saving of anyone is not something within our own power. It is exclusively God's. No one can be saved by virtue of what he or she can do, but everyone can be saved by virtue of what God can do. The psalmist says, Great are the works of the Lord, and we delight in all that God has done, is doing, and will do. God's work is full of majesty, and God's righteousness endures forever and ever. The psalmist covers all the bases. We call this the great buttering up of God. We know of God from all of God's wonderful deeds. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is merciful. He provides food to those who are hungry and clothes to those who are naked. But among all these buttery compliments, there is one verse. One verse that should shine bright like a light and for some reason we overlook it all the time. And this is what it says. God sent redemption to God's people. God sent redemption to us. Perhaps it's a byproduct of coming of age in a culture where we're always told to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we assume salvation is up to us. We read all these books about how to be the better me. We think that if I add this discipline, if I get on this diet, that it will fix all of my problems. We even surround ourselves with people who look like us and think like us to embolden our own beliefs, rather than spending time with people who are different from us, who will challenge what we think we know. But God sent redemption to us. Can you think of a more beautiful sentence in all of Scripture? God sent redemption to us. Not a five-step process of becoming the true you. Not an outline of a daily schedule to practice your piety. Not a pill or a product that can fix our problems. God sent redemption to us. Period. We have been redeemed. But from what? In the beginning of scripture, there's a story about a man and a woman who had a choice. They could have stayed within God's loving and beautiful embrace, or they could have tasted the fruit, that forbidden fruit. All was theirs, and then all was lost, because they chose to govern themselves rather than to obey God. They believed in the bootstrap model rather than the grace-filled model. They wanted power, and they received punishment. They were like us. But God sent redemption to us. In the United Methodist world, we call redemption grace. 
It begins with prevenient grace. It's this grace that comes to us before we could ever do anything to deserve it. It comes to every person on the earth, no matter what. No matter what you've done, no matter who you will become, prevenient grace is yours. And then there's justifying grace. It's the act of God in Christ on the cross, resurrected from the grave three days later. We are justified because of what Christ was willing to do for us. And then there's sanctifying grace. It's the grace we experience each and every day through things like communion and baptism and preaching and reading and singing. We are sanctified through God's grace to continue to be justified people who were offered prevenient grace. Every day we are being sanctified. It's hard to imagine what that is, what that word means. And I heard it once said that sanctification is nothing more than getting used to your justification. When I was in seminary, you have to take a class called Survey of the New Testament. And every day you go, or every class period, you go through one book in the Bible. You start with Matthew, and you go to Mark, and Luke, and then John. And I can remember being in that class, furiously writing down everything I was hearing. Just imagining all of the wisdom I would get to impart on people like you one day. <laughs> we went through most of the New Testament, and then one day, my professor, we had a projector and a screen, this giant screen in the lecture hall. And he projected up an image of Jesus on the cross. It was a Renaissance painting. You can kind of imagine in your head, Jesus is like the perfect specimen of humanity. He has more muscles than you've ever seen in your life. He's there hanging on the cross, but he's glowing. He almost has a smile, and he doesn't look like he's suffering at all. Then my professor clicked the button, and there was another image of the crucifixion. This one was a little more abstract. The colors were a little stranger, but it was certainly Jesus. And this time he didn't look so happy to be upon that cross. And then he kicked the button again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And every time, a new image of Jesus dying on the cross was projected for all of us to see. And with each passing image, it became more gruesome, more violent, more frightening, such that I felt like I could no longer breathe. And I ran out of the class. Never in my life have I experienced something like this. I got up from my seat and I ran into the hallway as fast as I could. I felt like I was suffocating. And I threw my back against a wall and I fell down. And I was huffing and I was puffing. And my friend, Will, came running out of the classroom. He walked up to me, he grabbed me by the shoulders and he lifted me up. And he said, what in the world is going on with you? And I said, Will, I just don't deserve it. I mean, looking at all those images of Jesus, he should not have done that for me. I don't deserve it. And with complete sincerity, he said, you idiot, that's the whole point. You don't deserve it. Neither do I. That's why we call it grace. God sent redemption to us. We did not receive this redemption, God's grace, because we fully mastered the faithful life or because we finally put all of our ducks in a row or because we finally paid off all our credit card debt and finally because we lost those 10 pounds. No, God sent redemption to us, period. End of story. No matter what you do, God will never love you anymore. No matter what you do, God will never love you any less. You have been saved. You are being saved. As you get used to this justification, God is sanctifying you. There is nothing, 
Nothing we can do to be saved because God is the one saving us. That's why the psalmist can start and say, praise the Lord. Because God's works are indeed good and great. God is full of majesty and righteousness. God is gracious and holy. He has sent redemption to us. However, lest we become couch potato Christians, we're not just sitting around waiting for God to do something. This grace has been given to us in such a way that it forces us to respond in ways that we can barely imagine. We are always moving to a greater understanding of what it means to love God and to love our neighbor. This grace, it's a gift. And like any other gift, we can receive it and we can put it in a closet and never look at it again. But it won't do us any good. Or we can receive that gift. We can use it each and every day in the ways that we commune with God, the way that we spend time with our brothers and sisters, in the way that we experience God's creation. God sent redemption to us. Because God did this, we can praise the Lord, we can give thanks, we can pray, we can read, we can sing, we can gather together, we can do this with our whole hearts, with our whole bodies, our whole mind, and our whole strength, because God sent redemption to us, not the other way around. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. I've got to tell you, this whole no, no robe, handheld microphone thing, it works. I mean, I feel the spirit. This is great. Maybe I can heal some people. Maybe I can make a difference. Maybe if you gave $100 to <laughs> So I, I should have turned my, my recorder off. That's going to be recorded for all time. My brothers and sisters in the Methodist Church are going to think I told you you could buy your way into heaven. So thanks be to God. God is the one who bought the way to heaven for us. I cannot tell you how many times I have encountered people who were made to fear for their lives in order to give them to Jesus. I cannot tell you the number of times I've encountered people who felt like if they just prayed a little bit harder, if they just gave a little more money, then everything would be fixed, having forgotten that God already fixed everything. God sent redemption to us, period.